Heavenly Father, Lord, we do have um, heavy hearts here this morning. We do pray for Bob Dway and his healing. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in his life. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, protect him and his mind and his, his, his life. We do pray for um, many more years of his preaching here uh, for our sake and the sake of your body at large. And I pray for Jessica and for Diane and Colin and for the entire family. I pray that you'd give them peace, Lord. Allow them to know that their dad and their husband and father-in-law serves a, a mighty God. And so we pray for Bob this morning. We lift him up for healing. Bring him back to us, Lord. And we think of Cladoris this morning with the blood clot. Lord, we do pray for healing upon her. We pray for peace upon Norm. And I pray for guidance with the doctors as well. And we lift them both up for healing. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, um, Bob was going to be teaching here this morning, and I know he was excited to do so. But we, um, we have a wonderful presentation from Mike Gendron, but we're going to save that in case we need it at some later date. So today I thought I would try to wrap up our discussion on the important terms and eschatology. We'll try to wrap it up. We've had some really good discussions with that. And uh, I want you to remember where we left off last time. We talked about the exemption from wrath that all believers are guaranteed. And this isn't just an exemption that we see in one or two passages. We saw over and over that God has promised that believers will be spared from the coming wrath. We looked at, I'm just going to give you a little review. Recall we looked at Luke 17. Remember the example that was there was that Lot and his family were spared prior to the judgment coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in Luke 17, Jesus uses that directly related to the eschatological events that will be coming. So Lot serves as a paradigm of what God will do in the future. Just as Lot was spared just prior to the wrath coming, the people of God will be spared just prior to the wrath coming again. That's the way he's going to operate. Now, we looked also, oops, excuse me, if, if you look at Matthew 24, we saw the same thing, that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, there was no warning at all. But prior to the judgment coming, Noah's family, Noah and his family, were removed, the people of God. And so that is the precedent that we have in Scripture, and it's all directly related by Christ to the end times, that the people of God are removed prior to the wrath coming. Remember also we read Isaiah 26, where God tells of a resurrection of his people. Then he says, you're going to hide in your rooms for a little while while I pour out my wrath upon all of the world. Well, that's exactly what the New Testament is teaching. There isn't one plan in the Old Testament and one in the New. It's been always the same plan, that in the future day of the Lord, God will rescue his people prior to the wrath of God coming. We also talked about, remember, the Olivet Discourse. And we explained how all of the signs associated with it are within the 70th week of Daniel. And the question is, well, when will the 70th week of Daniel come? No one knows. That's why it's imminent. It's at hand because you don't know when the 70th week is going to break forth. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow morning. It could, it could be a week from now. It could be 100 years from now. It could be 1,000 years from now. Imminence does not mean that it has to happen within a certain time frame. It means that it can occur at any time. 
it is always at hand. It is always a threat for the enemies of God and always at hand as a blessing for the people of God. Now, I want to continue talking about this exemption from wrath. We see this, for example, oops, sorry, um, this computer is a little slower than mine, so I hit a button and then nothing happens. So there's a little delay. I got to get used to that. I'm going to show you this 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. In fact, Eric, would you mind reading that? I'm just going to get a cough drop in. I'm a little congested here early in the morning. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll just read this off the screen. Thank in other you. words, Perfect. this is not a test question. I don't have to go to my Bible. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. there's, yeah. no, there's no nothing uh, tricky about this. Nothing tricky, okay. right? This is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10. Yeah, amen. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Amen. Very good. Now, what's very interesting is let's remember the context here of this passage. Remember earlier in 1 Thessalonians, and I'm talking just seven verses earlier, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord. So here, here's why I point that out. I remember bringing this up, this passage, to another pastor who I really adore. And he said, well, yeah, but this exemption from wrath, how do we know it's not just the exemption from the lake of fire? How do we know that it's exemption from the tribulation period? Well, the reason we know that is because the context has to do with the future day of the Lord. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, oops, let me just back up here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, what did we have discussed? We had the rapture discussed, didn't we? Okay, that's just 10 verses earlier, right? Then just six verses earlier is the subject of the future day of the Lord. That's the subject. That's at hand. The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Six verses later, Paul says, we've not been destined for wrath. So notice the wrath that we're not destined for is this day of the Lord that's coming imminently upon the world. Oh, yes, it incorporates the lake of fire. But it certainly incorporates also the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. That's the context of 1 Thessalonians 5.9. So always remember 1 Thessalonians 5.9. It's teaching you that the people of God are exempt from the coming wrath. That the day of the Lord's wrath will not touch us. The day of the Lord will be salvation for us. That's what it's teaching us. Okay? And again, directly related to the rapture as well. Yeah, Eric. Um, also, I think that the entire epistle to the Thessalonians, they were undergoing persecution. Absolutely. And, and what Paul was addressing in that letter was that they thought that the day of the Lord was already upon them. Yes. They, they thought, you know, this is horrible persecution. You know, have we missed the rapture? And that's kind of what he's talking about there. He's saying no. You know. Exactly right. In fact, when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says... Do not be deceived in any way as if from a letter from us or from some spirit, as if the day of the Lord is present. And I've labored hard to show that present is the best translation. Most of our English versions say have come or has come. But the implication is that's a past tense idea. You see, they weren't worried about the fact that they, it was going to come and they were going to miss. They, they thought they were in it, just as you said. So what Paul does in 2 Thessalonians 2 is he shows, no, the first thing within the 70th week is the man of lawlessness and the apostasy, okay? So you're exactly right. Well, here, what he's showing us is that we have not been destined to this coming wrath that's going to imminently come. In fact, we've been destined 
to be brought up to the, the Lord. It connects directly to the teaching of the rapture. So there, if you ever say, well, where's a, pa a passage that shows us the relationship between the rapture and our exemption from the day of the Lord's wrath? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, all the way through 5, 10. Remember, these chapters were put in much later. Paul's just writing his continuous thoughts, right? The chapter breaks are a man's, man's construct, okay? So here we see clear, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Uh, some people who hold to the pre-wrath, they would say that, well, well, look here, you could still start the tribulation period and you could still be taken out by the rapture pre-wrath. But that right. can hold up because when the Antichrist is revealed, you could open up Revelation and you could follow God's plan step by step, and that would not be a thief in the night. Exactly right. Well said. In fact, it ties in exactly to what I want to drive us to. The reason I'm showing you this, that we've been exempt from wrath, is exactly what Brian's driving at. See, at the end of the day, all the rapture views boil down to this. When does the wrath come? If, if I can prove, and the Bible does prove it, that you're exempt from wrath, we've seen it over and over. All the argument, the only thing we're arguing about when it comes to rapture views is when does the wrath come? It really is that simple. You're exempt from wrath, therefore when does the wrath come? And what I will prove to you is the wrath happens at the beginning of the 70th week. If that's true, what do you have? You have to have a pre-tribulational rapture. If the wrath happens or occurs later, then perhaps pre-wrath is correct. But I'll prove that they're not correct. I'll show you that you have to go jump through a lot of hoops to try to claim that the wrath of God is not present at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so much so that I, I couldn't believe it in good conscience, any other view. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Um, oh, before I move on, another passage you want to jot down is Romans 5, 9. I always remember when you want to talk about exemption from wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Romans 5, 9. Paul said that much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So there we're promised exemption from wrath. Now, I want to focus on Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 is one of the most abused, misunderstood, neglected passages in all of the Bible. And it's very frustrating because a lot of it came from a scholar who should know better. His name was Robert Gundry, and I'll explain. But let's read Revelation 3.10. Listen to what Christ promised. Now, remember, this promise goes out to the church at Philadelphia, but when he says in all of the churches, all seven of them, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, I think it's fair to say that all of these promises that Christ gives to the seven churches apply to all Christians for all time. Notice what he promises, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I want to read to you something from a man named Thomas Edgar. Anyone seen on our website? We have a paper written by Thomas Edgar. I highly recommend that everyone read it. It's somewhat scholarly, but you'll be able to follow it. He takes to task a man named Robert Gundry. Now, let me explain why. Robert Gundry was a post-tribulationalist scholar. And what he did, I think it was in the 1970s or 80s, 
But he wrote a whole book about tereo ek, this verb and preposition, keep from. And what he tried to claim is that the verb and the preposition together means to be kept through and then to be taken out at the end. Now, the problem with that is that is a lot for a verb to mean. How many of you know of a verb that means to be kept through something only to be taken out at the end? Well, let me just put it this way. It's hogwash. Absolute nonsense. It's laughable. It's so bad. But you see, when you have the vast majority of the church that's unfamiliar with this, they, they can be led astray. So Thomas Edgar writes a blistering rebuke of Gundry's article, all to show that, no, keep from means precisely that. So let me pull up my pointer. I, I think I have a pointer on this one, don't I? I'm sorry, I've got a different computer than, oh, yeah, I've got a pointer, an arrow. Does everyone see the arrow? No? Maybe I don't have an arrow. Ballpoint pen? Highlighter? <laughs> I've got all these options. I don't know what works. Well, I'll just forget it. Notice here on the 70th, Daniel 70th week, if that's the hour of trial, being kept from means you will not enter into that time period. That's how we have to understand it. Oops, I'm sorry, we're getting music through here too. Okay. It's kind of nice having theme, theme music as you're teaching. I feel kind of, yeah, I'm sorry, Paul. Uh, this may be opportune time to ask this question because we're being interrupted here, but this is not a salvific question that we're discussing here today. Is that correct? This I, is not salvific. I mean, this, our salvation does not depend upon this. Is that correct? That's correct, but uh, let me just push back on that. The, the, the reason why I think it's important is, let me explain why this is important. Everybody says, well, why do you talk about these things? The reason why is if there's such muddledness if everyone is unsettled, well, they believe that, they believe that. Well, who can really know? That's the attitude I think most Christians have come. That's the attitude I had for a lot of years. Who can really know? Now, let me say this. Aren't these our great promises as to what's going to happen in the future? It is. Well, what if, if you went to seminary today and you talk about the atonement, someone would say, oh, that's substitutionary atonement. Well, that's just one view among many. We don't think that Jesus is really our substitute. We think he's more a moral influence. And there's all these other views on the atonement. Well, it leads a lot of people in seminary to conclude, well, we can't really even know what Jesus did on the cross. What's so sad about that, Paul, is in fact the Bible's very clear. Over and over and over the Bible teaches substitution. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. That's substitution. Um, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Substitution. Substitution's all over. So how, are, I saw this personally. So many Christians in the seminaries are being duped as if the substitutionary atonement is something that was made up by man. The reason why I want to get into this is to show you, actually, the end is very clear. It's people who have muddled it with bad ideas. So what I'm sick of is all this disunity and people say, well, they all divide over these things. We shouldn't be. The ending is very clear. It's as clear as the substitutionary atonement. It's that clear. We're exempt from wrath. When does the wrath come? Well, we'll look at it. So that's why I want to handle it. Not because if you have a different view on the, the tribulation that somehow you're going to perish. I'm not claiming that. But what I am claiming is I think the church can be unified and to say, you know what? God did not muddle the ending. He's been very clear. 
That's what I want to avoid. I want to avoid the postmodern mindset that says, well, who can understand it? Who can know? Everyone disagrees. Let's just never talk about it. That's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, Eric. Actually, I want, I want to expand a little bit on that, too. Um, and I think Paul is right. In other words, this isn't a salvific question. Yeah. But there's ramifications for when the church, the church as a whole, does things like kingdom now. Absolutely. Or, the, or that we need to bring in, we the church need to bring in the millennial kingdom. Right. The, the, the churches go off on these terribly unfortunate uh, wrong paths. Yeah. And that's, that's how they get into, I think this is how they get into, rather than preaching salvation through Christ, instead they get into, we're going to go and we're going to build all kinds of of, of things. We're going to go to Africa and we're going to drill wells and we're going to do all kinds of things like that and then everybody, somehow it'll all work out. So I think that the, just exactly it's, right the, it's the ramifications of it that I think, and so I think what we really need in the seminaries and in our churches yeah. and in each of us, of which I would raise my hand and say I'm as guilty as anyone, we need to have a more comprehensive understanding of the Bible. Amen. Well said. Bob's first CIC article that he ever wrote was against Christian Reconstructionism. That's a post-millennial view. The idea is that we're going to so Christianize the planet and we're going to subject every man to the laws of God. And so they actually take these Reconstructionists who are post-millennial, they take the idea of the mandate that we see in Genesis where we have as human beings made in the image of God we can rule over all other creatures. Well, they extend the rule to mankind itself, which is certainly is not in the text. So you're right. They end up abusing, uh, at least giving license to abuse many people and binding them to a covenant that we as Christians aren't even bound to, namely the Mosaic Covenant, which has now been made obsolete. So you're right. There's huge ramifications in eschatology. That would be one example. Now, I'm not claiming anyone who has a different understanding of the, the tribulation period or the rapture view holds to that, but you're right, it can have huge ramifications. Yeah, I'm sorry, I see another hand up. Uh, you, uh, we got a hand up there? Oh, okay, nope, never mind. No, sorry, you were just stretching. Got it. All right, now let me read to you Thomas Edgar what he says, and you'll just get the gist of it. He takes on this understanding that we're going to be kept through the hour and then to be taken out at the end. Thomas Edgar says this in his paper, and you can read it online. Quote, Robert Gundry's interpretation of Revelation 3.10 is impossible grammatically and linguistically. The separation of the expression, ek, which is keep from, into two separate and contradictory aspects is a grammatical impossibility. In addition, the lexical meanings Gundry assigns to the verb and preposition are impossible in the expression keep from. <clears throat> Unless this grammatic incorrect separation is maintained. On a purely factual basis, it is shown that contrary to Gundry's statements, the expression terao-ek, keep from, is ideally suited for the pre-tribulational perspective, unquote. Why? Because you can never enter into the time of wrath. Let me show it to you this way. There's only one other passage in all of the Bible that uses terao-ek together, and it's used by John. Remember, tereo is keep. Ek is the preposition from. And what we want to understand is how is that used elsewhere, especially by John? Why? Because John is the author of the book of Revelation. 
So let's look at how he uses it elsewhere. Remember in John 17, 15. Oh, in fact, who has uh, their Bible open? Could somebody read John 17, 15? Uh, Eric, could you read that for us since you I, get the mic? I'm almost there. Okay, good. John 17, 15. Yeah, sorry, I've got a different computer, and I don't know always what's on here. So, yeah, John 17, 15. Okay, so here's John 17, verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Aha! Notice the keep from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Okay. Terao keep, ek from the evil one. The same construction that we have in Revelation 3.10. So, why is this important? Well, because John's using the same language. What we can conclude is that you have two different spheres in John 17.15. Remember, Jesus is praying for believers, and he's praying that we as believers will never come into contact with whom? With Satan. We are going to be in a camp that never touches the camp of Satan. That's the promise that Jesus is praying for. Okay? Now, how do we know that it's not just Jesus praying that we will not enter into temptation? Well, because one chapter later, Peter succumbs to temptation. Remember, he's shifted by Satan. Remember, there was a slave girl who says, I saw you with him, and he denies Christ. How many times at the end? Three. So Jesus' prayer did not fail. Jesus was not praying that we would never be tempted. But what he's praying is that the believer, once in the kingdom of God, will never ever go back to the kingdom of the evil one. That's what it means to be kept from. That you never enter in to the evil one's sphere. Do you see that separation? Okay. Now, let's turn our Bibles to 1 John 5, 18 through 19. Let me show you how strong this separation is between the believer and the evil one. Now, as you're turning to 1 John 5, 18 through 19, remember, Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 through 14 that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, one sphere, and we've been delivered into the kingdom of the beloved son, a different sphere. So here in John 17, 15, Jesus is just simply praying that God would keep us in the sphere of the sun, that we'll always be kept from the arena, the sphere, the kingdom, the camp, however you want to say it, of Satan. We'll never enter into it. Now, here's why 5, 1 John 5, 18 through 19 is relevant. John says here, we know that no one who is born of God sins, meaning we don't live in lawlessness. Not that we don't fall short, but the idea is we as Christians in the church are in the no sin zone. Just like, remember, Bill O'Reilly used to have the no-spin zone? We're in the no-sin zone. Let me tell you a cute story about this to illustrate it. How many have heard of D.A. Carson? D.A. Carson, famous scholar, evangelical. Well, he tells a story where he's going to school in England, and it says, no uh, chewing gum in this classroom. And he thought, how ironic. I'm, at this very moment, chewing gum while I'm reading that. Well... The sign did not mean that there weren't one or two who would end up chewing gum. What the sign meant is it wouldn't be tolerated, which he soon found out when the instructor put the paddle to him. In the same way, lawlessness is not tolerated in the church of God. And that's why Bob was talking about we are those who don't live lawlessly. 
If we sin, we are those who have to repent and move out. Why? Because we're in the no sin zone. So that's what's being referred to there. But notice it says, he who was born of God, this is a reference to Christ, keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Notice the evil one does not touch him. Well, that's exactly what he's saying here in John 17, 15. Keep them from the evil one. So notice the evil one will never be in his camp again. But notice what about the whole world? Verse 19, he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I wish I had a pointer somehow on this. Let me just try to illustrate this. Arrow? No. Felt tip pen? Ballpoint pen? What could I do? Well, I guess I can't do anything. Sorry. But just think of the whole world is in the sphere of the evil one, and we are in a completely different sphere. We're kept from him. You'll never go back. God is going to answer that prayer. Now, how does that relate to Revelation 3.10? Well, the same term is used in Revelation 3.10. Think of the believer in that sphere and the evil one. Take out evil one in your mind and put in the time of trial, the hour of testing in Revelation 3.10. You're kept from that. You're never going to enter into it. Are you going to be, okay, in, in John 17, 15, is Jesus' prayer that you and I as the believer will enter into the evil one's camp, but then we'll be preserved while we're in this evil one's camp, and then we'll be taken out at the end? Does it mean that? No, it means that we'll never enter in, ever. Once you are in Christ's camp, there's no going back, ever, ever, ever. The same thing, if the believer, Revelation 3, 10, uh-oh, what happened there? Huh. It was a rapture of words. <laughs> there we go. I don't know how that happened. I don't think I touched anything. Think of, again, Revelation 3.10. Think of the same diagram. You have the believer and substitute the evil one. Just put in the hour of trial. You're kept from it. You can't enter into it. If I promise you that because you had such good scores on your math all year long, I'm going to keep you from the math test at the end of the year. Do you think that that means you're going to have to take the math test, but you're going to be preserved all the way through the math test only to be exempt at the end? Well, that would be a strange meaning indeed. Dear ones, being kept from means precisely that. Oh, I had that hour of trial. There we go. I just couldn't get it to come up. All right? So that's, that's what it means. That's what Revelation 3.10 means. Now, what that means then is we have to ask, when does the wrath come? Yes. Uh, Bob gets those emails all the time from people who claim to be demon-possessed. And uh, he comes back to them with similar to John 1, 5, 18, exactly, 19. Exactly, right. And uh, uh, which opens the door to all these uh, false teachers who are cleansing people, if you will, yes. of uh, demon spirits, when in fact, if they were to read and understand God's word, we're protected from that as we're protected from the wrath. Well said, exactly right. <clears throat> so the biblical worldview when it comes to spiritual warfare, the biblical worldview affirms that these spirit beings are real, but where we differ from the spiritual warfare teachers is that, yes, there's spiritual warfare, but the way we fight isn't by manipulating demons or angels. Why? Because God providentially controls them and uses them as he sees fit. 
So the biblical worldview, as Brian's mentioning, is what we see in Romans 8, 28, that God really does cause all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Think about how God used Satan to help Paul. According to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh from Satan. And remember, he went to the throne of grace. That's the proper thing to do. Paul did not try to manipulate the demons or try to say, I rebuke you and I bind you, Satan. Instead, he went to the throne of grace and he said, Lord, this is bothering me. I want it out. God said, no, my grace is sufficient. God used that to humble Paul because of the exceedingly great revelations that he has seen. But Paul modeled the proper understanding. If you and I think that someone has issues with demons or you think you do, go to the throne of grace because you can be assured that if you're in God's camp, he will use all things. Do all things incorporate even the demonic realm? Angels? Oh, yes. The whole cosmos can be moved by God for your good. That's what we're promised in Scripture. That's the proper worldview. And that's what Bob has been um, laboring hard to, to show. Okay, so now what we've shown thus far is we are going to be exempt from God's wrath. Is everyone on board with that? You're not going to be preserved through the wrath and be taken out at the end. That's absurd. You have to be exempt from the wrath of God. Now, the only question we have to ask and argue about is when does the wrath come? So that's what we're going to look at now. Now, what I want to do is put on Revelation 6, 2 through 4. Why? Because every scholar agrees that Revelation 6 is the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. I wish I had a pointer. But you see at the very beginning of the 70th week, think of this passage as referring to the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, now listen to what it says. Revelation 6, 2 through 4. It says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. Stop there. Who is this one on the white horse? What's well, the Antichrist? And what does he do? It says a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Notice the first thing that the Antichrist does. He brings warfare. He's going to conquer, and he's conquering. That's warfare. Notice it continues. It says when he broke the second seal. Now, this is related to what he's doing. I heard the second living creature say, come. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. How does Jesus begin the Olivet Discourse talking about the signs within the 70th week? He says there will be wars and rumors of wars. So bad is this warfare that when we get to the fourth seal, which is still in the beginning of the 70th week, you lose a quarter of the earth's population. Now, why is this important? Because it tells us that there is no peace at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3. We're going to prove that the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, begins, therefore, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. We're going to put these texts right next to each other and conclude something profound. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, it says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly 
like labor pains upon a woman with the child, and they will not escape. Now, dear ones, notice in verse 3, the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. Yet notice on the screen in the book of Revelation, there is no peace. Peace has been removed. Notice it says it was granted to take peace from the earth. Can God's word be any clearer that peace has been removed? So how can people be saying peace and safety when there's no peace at the beginning of the 70th week? Are you with me? Therefore, the day of the Lord has to occur at the beginning of the 70th week. The day of the Lord happens while they're saying peace and safety. They have peace. It's a declaration that they have peace. It's not a desire for peace. Otherwise, the sudden destruction that comes upon them, which is a change, makes no sense. So it's not them wishing for peace and safety. It's a declaration that they have peace and safety. That's why Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, what were they doing in Noah's day? They were eating and drinking. Life went on as it always had, and destruction came suddenly. That's the idea. So the point is, the wrath, of come, the wrath to come must occur at the beginning of the 70th week. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Well, at the second seal, at the very beginning, it's stated that peace has been taken from the earth. Two seals later, you lose a quarter of the earth's population. 25% die to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. By the way, do you know why all four are mentioned? Sword, this is in Revelation 6, 8. Sword has to do with warfare. The warfare is going to be so bad, it's going to lead to worldwide famine. Worldwide famine will be so bad that it leads people to being open up to pestilence. In other words, disease. And the disease and everything that's gone before it, the sword, the famine, is so bad that society will break down to the point where people are being dragged away by wild bees. Can you imagine a day in which society has been so destroyed, you see someone being dragged away by a wild animal? And yet that's exactly what happened to Judah because of their sin in Ezekiel 14. And what God is doing in the 70th week of Daniel is he's doing a reversal. What came upon his people, Israel, is now going to come upon the world because they won't trust in Christ. They trust in Antichrist. They won't live for the new Jerusalem. They're going to build Babylon. And so the wrath of God comes upon them, and it's at the beginning of the 70th week, right away. So therefore, what we have to conclude is the day of the Lord is, in fact, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Does everyone see that? All right, now, any comments or questions, pushback? Yeah, Eric. Oh, yeah. This is, I think, stating the obvious, in other words. In other words, the wrath, the day of the Lord, it will come suddenly. I mean, there won't be any, it'll be a complete surprise. Absolutely. Just like a thief in the night. Absolutely, that's right. Just logically thinking, if um, the church is removed, the rapture happens, that's a sudden event, and I can imagine chaos just completely breaking out. It's almost like they're one in this, the same, that cause and effect. I think you're exactly right, Christy. Exactly. Yep. And I think it will be explained away. I think the explanation will be these were the intolerant ones. In fact, um, um, I'm sorry, Tom, I'll be right there. Yeah, you know, um, who was that? Warren, there was a guy that Bob used to have come out. Warren, um, 
Dana, do you remember his name, Warren Smith? He was a speaker, and he, had, he was in the New Age movement. And the speaker that we used to have come here that speak at old TCF, he came out and talked about how the New Age movement had books written about how one day the universal God, remember they believe in the oneness of the universe, would one day judge the intolerant ones. So there's already explanations in the New Age movement for the removal of us. Okay, so that's how they're going to explain it away, I'm sure. Okay, so yeah, I'm sorry, Tom. Just uh, kind of understanding a little bit about, uh, so what we're basically saying too is peace has to come. And so you have the, you know, you had the Oslo uh, peace agreement, uh, but now there's going to be another peace agreement with, with Israel. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. So the thing about this life as it's going on right now, what happens with the rapture of the church is afterwards, it ushers in this time of chaos, as Christy was mentioning. Well, to put a clamp on the chaos, you have this man of lawlessness who seems to be the, um, the, guy, the good guy with the white hat riding in on the, the, the horse to save everyone. But in fact, he's the conqueror who's actually going to go and bring hell on earth. And it's at that time then that he brings this covenant to Israel. One of the big issues, why isn't there peace in the world? Well, it's the fighting over Israel. But he'll seem to have remedied that. He'll bring a covenant for seven years. And part of the covenant will probably be something to do with the temple. In light of the fact that all these nations agree not to attack us in Israel, the Israelites get to build their temple or they, um, they get to worship in their temple. But the temple's restored. And we know that because at the three and a half year mark, he breaks his promises. He puts an end to the Jewish law. And then he starts persecuting them for the last three and a half years. So yes, absolutely, there's going to be a peace agreement, a covenant with Israel in that last seven years. And it will be related to peace when, in fact, there's going to be the greatest warfare to ever occur. Yeah. So it's, it's both peace on a temporary basis. But yeah. there's a declaration of peace, you know, kind of like... Well, the peace, what's interesting, Peter, is the peace ends up happening in Israel for the first three and a half years. That's why, remember Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, what we're reading about there is going to happen in the Goim, the nations. That's the Gentile nations. But Israel's going to be rather secure. That's why when he gets to the midpoint, Matthew 24, 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains or flee to the hills. Because at the three and a half year mark, now the persecution comes to Israel. And again, it'll be the worst ever. It'll be the time of Jacob's distress. Yep. Yeah, so, so that, yeah, the peace, ironically, will be specifically for Israel, but the rest of the world is going to be in such great warfare that you lose a quarter of the Earth's population. By the way, I look at statistics for how many we lost in World War II. The most was probably 4%. So I want you to think of 4% of the population in World War II. That was a horrific war. But... What occurs in the opening seal judgments is six times worse than that. That's why this time period now can be referred to as a time of peace. Compared to what's going to occur, this is peace and safety. Okay, that's the idea. I'm sorry, I saw another hand. Lonnie. Yeah, I noticed that a lot of scholars look at the white horse and they'll say that this is Christ. And uh, some say that it is uh, the Antichrist, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's some who will try to claim it's Christ, others that it's Antichrist. The, the clear indication to me is that it is Antichrist. He's obviously trying to be a pseudo-Christ. We see Christ at the end in Revelation 19. He's the true one. He comes down. And the descriptions of him show that he's the true Christ. 
This is an imposter who doesn't bring peace for his people, but he brings warfare upon the world. So, so yeah, how, how, oh. He might have something to add to our discussion here. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead though. Oh yeah, so the evidence that this horse, this white horse is the Antichrist is, yeah. is from where now? Yeah, well look at first of all the context. Yeah. The context is, notice he takes peace from the earth. Now you could try to say, well that's Christ and his judgment. The problem with it is, remember even in the Olivet Discourse, Christ begins by saying there'll be Christ and there'll be many false Christs. Remember the false Christ, the Antichrist comes from a conglomeration of other false Christ, namely the 10. Remember the 10 kingdoms that are associated with him? Well, the one rises out of that. So I think that that's what Jesus is referring to. Uh, think about the apostle Paul. It says that the day of the Lord will not happen until you have the apostasy. That's the worldwide rebellion of people against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. So both in the Olivet Discourse and in what Paul is teaching in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness is the first thing within the 70th week of Daniel. Um, so if Revelation 6 is about the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, more than likely this writer is therefore the Antichrist, the very man of lawlessness Paul was talking about, one of the false Christs that, Paul was, or that Jesus was warning about in the Olivet Discourse. That's how I really look at it. Um, the descriptions also of Christ in Revelation 19 are important because he's the Lord of Lords. Yeah. Well, an important distinction between this rider on the white horse and Christ on the white horse returning later is that this rider on the white horse is armed with a bow. Yeah. Christ is armed with a sword. There's it comes out of his mouth. Right. Amen. Yeah, very good. Yeah, excellent. All right. Paul. Um. The church, or better yet, the people of God, or even better yet, the elect, yeah. uh, when, this, when they're under adversity, many times go right back to the Word, right back to Scripture, right back to the Gospel. And so rather than this being an ominous weather report of what's going to come, I think it's the very thing that is going to drive us right back to the Word, right back to the Gospel. Yeah, amen. Um, you're absolutely right, Paul. And that's one of the reasons why eschatology is important, is because... It shows us the necessity to be found in Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't want to ever be under the wrath of God. And it really is something that should always drive us to the gospel, drive us to repentance, to drive us to be those who avoid these things, who say, I'm a partaker in the kingdom, not in the wrath to come. So absolutely, it's a motivating factor for obedience. Yeah. So just to feedback from what Dana uh, had said, and for our listeners, can you make that distinction again between the bowl and the sword? Yeah, in fact, let, let Dana talk more about that. Um, Dana, why don't you talk more about the bow and the sword and the significance of it? I don't know where it is, but there's a scripture in the Old Testament which yeah. talks about a deceitful bow. Mm. So the, the bow is a weapon of deceit. I mean, when you, when you fight someone with a sword, you're fighting them face to face. When you're fighting them with a bow, you're standing back. You're, okay. you're, it, it's a deceitful thing. Man. Sure. Yeah, very good. Yeah, um, again, what I've always seen is the description of Christ himself. In fact, let's turn to Revelation 19.11. Let's look at that once. Let's look at his description, what he looks like. <clears throat> Revelation 
Revelation 19, I believe it's verse 11. Notice the distinction of how he's described. Oh, it's, oh I'm sorry, I'm at 9-11. I'm like, well, 9-11, I'm way off. It's about the bottomless pit. Here's 19. Uh, this is Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now stop there. Is the rider on this white horse in Revelation 6, is he called Faithful and True? No, it's, con it's conspicuously absent, isn't it? Now again, remember, Jesus talks in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 about the 70th week of Daniel beginning with false Christ. The Antichrist is one of the ten. He comes out of that conglomeration. Okay? What's more, Paul says the beginning of the day of the Lord is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So we can conclude from those passages that indeed the Antichrist is present and is prominent at the very beginning of the 70th week. Okay? He does not have the description of being faithful and true. And notice it says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice this Antichrist does not in righteousness, whoever is described in Revelation 6, is not righteously judging and making war. Notice in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and in his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So notice here, he's described as the very word of God. Well, that's exactly how John describes him in the beginning was the word. Right? So this is certainly Christ. He's returning to wage war on the enemies. And in Revelation chapter 6, at the beginning, you don't have this waging war. He's not referred to as the word. He's not faithful and true. It doesn't say that he does it in righteousness as he judges and wages war. So all of those descriptors in Revelation 19 show me that there is a distinction between the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 and the one in Revelation 19. Okay, that's what I would go on. And um, more power to uh, the argument with what Dana suggested, the significance. I've never, to be honest with you, Dana, I've never seen the significance of the sword. In and I'm not saying that it's not there. I just could never detect it. So I'm glad that you have and some others have. I just have never been able to put it together. So I'm glad that, and I've seen others write about it. I just never could do it. I never figured it out. So that's just my ignorance more than likely. But yeah. So, very good. So, does, does that help the question then? I'm sorry, whoever asked the question. I don't remember who asked the question. <laughs> My memory is going. Okay. So, now, that's when the wrath comes. Now, let's look at the various rapture views. I wish I had a pointer. I should have that. Let's talk about the different views. We're just going to lay it out there, what the proper view is. The post-tribulational view, that is, the rapture happens at the end of the 70th week. I wish I had a pointer so bad. Yeah, yeah, there you go. He's tall. Um, let's see if I can get this to work. No? I'll see if I can get a pen. See if I can do that. No? Can't get a pen to work either. Okay, well, I guess I don't have a pointer. But the post-tribulational rapture view, notice at the end of 70th week, what they would claim is the rapture happens there. And they would claim that the wrath is relocated just to the battle of Armageddon. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, we know even by the fourth seal, 
the very beginning of the 70th week, you have sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. That was the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14, 19 through 21. Why is it no longer the wrath of God in the 70th week of Daniel? Do you know why it can't be the wrath of God to those who are post-tribulationists? Because they don't want it to be. It's special pleading. We can't have that the wrath of God because it doesn't work out with our view. Of course it's the wrath of God. In fact, we know that the wrath has occurred in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, turn your Bibles. I don't have a passage for it. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 6. And I'll tell you what verse here in a moment. And I'll show you where the, the wrath is explicitly stated. It's Revelation 6, 17. But I'll just back up. Verse 16. So this is Revelation 6, 16 and 17. This is the unregenerate. They're calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne. By the way, right there. Notice this is the one who's seated on the throne. Christ is seated on the throne. The, the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6 isn't in heaven, is he? He's going throughout the earth conquering. Are you with me? Where's Jesus? He's on the throne. So that's a distinction right there that shows us the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 can't be Christ. Why? He's in heaven. All right, are you with me? Re Revelation 6, the rider's going to and fro on the earth, conquering and to conquer. Okay, so that'd be another indicator. But notice they call, they call out, fall on us, on, on the rocks that is, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Now, one of the big debates is, notice the wrath has come. I think that that's what's called a constitutive aorist. It simply means that it's a summary of what has occurred in the past. And finally, it dawns on even the unregenerate that what they have seen from Revelation 6 on has been the very wrath of God. So notice you have the wrath of God. Well, if the post-tribulationalists are right, then you really aren't exempt from the wrath of God, do you see? But what have we been promised? Exemption from the wrath of God. What's more, did Jesus not say that no one knows the day or the hour when he's coming? Certainly he did in Matthew 24, 36. Well, if the post-tribulationalist is right, as soon as you see the signs in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, you just count out seven years. You know exactly when Christ is coming, right? So the doctrine of imminence is gone. The idea that you're exempt from God's wrath is gone. Well, post-tribulationalists don't have a leg to stand on, you see. There's nothing to say. Now, let me show you another view. Another view, the mid-trib mid rapture view, is that the wrath of God only begins at the second part of Daniel's 70th week. Now, what's the problem with that? It's the same argument I've just put forward. The wrath of God is certainly present in the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. So they would have you, therefore, go through part of God's wrath. And what they try to do, dear ones, is they try to make a false distinction between the wrath of the nations, the wrath of man, and the wrath of God. Not realizing that God is on the throne and he uses the nations just as he did in Isaiah 10 for the purposes of his wrath. So it's futile to say, well, that's just the wrath of the nations or the wrath of the Antichrist when God is the one who is using it all for his purposes. That's the idea. So again, the mid-tribulationalist will have you be under God's wrath. What happens to imminence? Would imminence not be shot? Certainly, you could see the beginning of the events in the first part of Daniel's 70th week. You count out 1,260 days. You're at the midpoint. You know there's the rapture. Imminence is gone. You wouldn't know the day and the hour. 
D.A. Carson said regarding the day and the hour, let's not be too pedantic and say, well, the day and the hour has to do with a literal 24-hour period, and the hour has to do with a literal 60-minute window. The day and the hour means you have no idea when he's coming. The day of the Lord and the hour of trial. You have no idea. I don't. It's just like the days of Noah. Life was going on as it always had. That's the idea. So the mid-trib view has no merit. Now, pre-wrath. Pre-wrath will claim that the wrath of God comes somewhere in the last three and a half years. And what they claim is that imminence is found in the fact that you don't know when in that last three and a half years he's going to come. But again, I think that that's playing fast and loose with what Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. If, if you see the abomination that causes desolation, you'll know that Christ is coming within 1,260 days. It'll be within that window. Are you with me, the last three and a half years? Well, I don't think that that comports to what Jesus says. No one knows. What's more, the pre-wrath would claim that the wrath of God is not poured out until the sixth seal. What's the problem with that? Well, at the fourth seal, you had again, Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, which is the wrath of God in Ezekiel 14, 19 through 21. Why is it no longer the wrath of God in the 70th week of Daniel? Because they don't want it to be. What's more, when they talk about the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, do you know that the pre-wrathers will try to claim to you that the wild beasts are in fact a reference to the Antichrist and the false prophet? Well, it's clearly not. It's clearly an illusion to Ezekiel 14, 21, where society will be so destitute that wild beasts will literally kill people. When normally in healthy societies, you know, we have such thing as animal control. We have rifles. We have ability to protect ourselves. Well, that won't happen anymore. What's more, the wild beasts, it says in Revelation 6, 8, they're the wild beasts of the earth. Well, if the pre-wrathers are right, that the reference to wild beasts at the fourth seal is a reference to Antichrist and the false beast, where does the Antichrist come from? In Revelation 13, he comes out of the sea. But notice in the fourth seal, these are the beasts of the earth. Okay, well, the Antichrist has priority between him and the false prophet. If John had intended to say that it was the Antichrist and the false prophet that were doing this at the fourth seal, he'd have to say the beast from the sea because that's the source from which the Antichrist comes. Okay, now why are they laboring trying to say that the beasts at the fourth seal are the Antichrist and the false prophet? Because they want the wrath to be the wrath of the Antichrist and not Christ. But again, you and I know that God uses not only the wrath of the nations, but even the wrath of the Antichrist for his purposes. All right, in fact, let me show you. Revelation 17, let's look at how God uses all things for his purposes. Revelation 17, I believe, verse 14, if I remember. Revelation 17, verse 14. This is talking about all those who gave allegiance. Oh, it's actually verse 17. But let me just start in verse 14. Revelation 17, 14. These are those who give their allegiance to the beast. It says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called the chosen and faithful. Verse 15, it says, the angel said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns, here's the conglomeration, 
that you saw. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So they're going to crush Babylon the great. Verse 17, notice it says, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. So notice when all the nations give their power to the beast, who is ultimately behind it? Well, God is. So what is this false distinction between the wrath of Antichrist and the wrath of Christ? It's a false indeed. So, dear ones, the whole point is the whole 70th week then has to be the wrath of God. Yes, Scott. I'm just really curious if you've deduced the pre-wrath uh, teachings motivation. What, why do they... Why, why, why do they go to that? Why do they want to go to that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't <laughs> pretend to always know their motivations. I know some of it um, that they've stated. One of the things that was stated is that if we don't prepare people to meet Antichrist, people are going to succumb in delusion to his schemes and they'll be lost. They'll take upon themselves the mark of the beast. But dear ones, so what they would say to us as pre-tribulationalists is that we're not preparing people to meet the Antichrist. But what I would say in re response is we're always to be prepared to meet Christ, not Antichrist. Remember um, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear he who can destroy the body. That's what mankind can do. That's what Satan could do to you. That's what one of the angels perhaps could do to you. But he says, don't fear that. Fear the one who can destroy both body, soul, and hell. We're to fear God alone. So you have to ask yourself, do you want to be prepared to meet Antichrist or Christ? I think you have to be prepared to meet Christ. That's what we have to be prepared for. And he's the one who's coming imminently. That's why he's a... You'll see a passage today from Philippians 3 where he's, we're eagerly waiting for him. Well, how can you eagerly wait for something that can't occur until the Antichrist comes? Okay, but we do eagerly wait. Why? Because it's the next thing on God's redemptive calendar as that the sun breaks through the clouds. Yeah, Brian. Uh, you hear people all the time say, prepare for the worst and pray for the best. But what I believe is actually happening is you have people that teach the non-pre-tribulation rapture, and they've gotten so wrapped up into it through books that they've written, sure. through followers in their congregations, that it, it all breaks down to a matter of pride. Sure. And you can't lay this out any better than you just did. Well, I don't so know about you that. could I'm sit sure one could. <laughs> on one with a uh, one of these other views and they would not believe it. They, they would not take it. Yeah. Let's go back to a category that Bob has been teaching. Uh, let's just honor him in the last day in the last moments here of our, our class. Bob has been teaching us for years and years, believe the promises of God. And all I'm trying to show is that one of the greatest promises we've ever been given is exemption from the wrath to come. And I've proven that. And in fact, all the pre-wrathers agree. So all we're arguing about is when does the wrath come? And I think I can prove that it begins in the 70th week. Peace and safety is removed. Well, the day of the Lord comes while they're still saying that. So therefore, what we're left with, dear ones, is the pre-tribulational rapture. The reason why is because God has promised us exemption from the wrath of God. The wrath of God begins. The whole 70th week is God's wrath. That's what it is. And so if that's true, therefore you can't be there. That's the promise. It's that simple. It all boils down to when is wrath come? Because once you know that, you know you're exempt from it. It's not that you're going to be kept through it to be taken out at the end or some convoluted idea that Gundry came up with. 
It's the idea that you're completely exempt from it. That's how we have to understand it. Brothers and sisters, every time I've ever distorted the promises of God, the true promises have always been better. The pre-tribulational rapture view is the best. And it's not just true because we believe it, but instead we believe it because it's true. It really is revealed in Scripture. You and I have been promised exemption from God's wrath and salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you that your word is clear. Even though we as humans often muddle it, you have spoken with clarity. We thank you for the promise that we will not undergo this time of trial that's coming upon the whole world. I pray, Lord, that you give us clarity of thought in these things so that we do not become postmodern or throw our hands up in the air and say, well, who can understand? But that we'd be people who would give clear callings as to what you've said. I pray for Bob now. Uh, we thank you for his teaching and leadership. We pray that you'd bring us Bring him back to us, Lord. Heal him up. Be with Cladorus. Heal her, Lord. We lift those two up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, everyone, for all the contributions. I love all your comments and your questions and uh, challenges, etc. It's been wonderful. We'll see you upstairs. <laughs>